Okay, um, good afternoon, good morning to those of you who are on a different coast and welcome to our breakout session. We're all in this together, the potential of narratives to strengthen social cohesion. So we'll jump into it in just a second. I have to make some housekeeping announcements. Um, so first, if you have any technical problems, you can send a direct message in Zoom chat or Whova to Lucia Salgado from MPI Europe. You can also email her at lsalgado at migrationpolicy.org. I think Lucia will post it in the chat box. There, there she is. Um, we will have a Q&A at the end of the session. Um, if you're following us in Whova, you can type your questions in the Q&A box there. If you've joined us via Zoom, you can post your questions directly in the chat box here. We will be recording this event, so please keep in mind that your questions and chat messages may be recorded and, of course, that they will be viewable by other participants. Okay, so let's, let's jump in. Um, so, as we're all aware, how we speak about migration and inclusion plays a decisive role in how immigrants are perceived in our societies, but also how we design systems and services to help them succeed. And COVID, of course, has shined a spotlight on the many competing and sometimes contradictory messages and narratives that coexist in all of our societies today. So on one hand, we've seen the widespread scapegoating of migrants, connecting them to the spread of communicable disease, which is not a new story, unfortunately. Um, and we've seen this really at each stage of the crisis, continuing even until today, nearly two years later, which has also been used to push through more restrictive migration policies. And on the other hand, we've also seen this kind of bubbling up sense that we're all in it together. We've seen this renewed sense of social solidarity, particularly with the most vulnerable. And we've also seen pushes to recognize the particular contributions that migrants and refugees have made to the COVID emergency response. And, and I think sometimes when we look at this landscape, we get a little bit trapped in this duality. Um, we, when we talk about public perceptions of immigrants or narratives about immigration, we sometimes assume that people's mindsets are fixed, that you're either for or against, you believe that immigration is a benefit or a cost to society. Um, so sometimes we get kind of hung up with telling one story. But I think one of the things that comes across clearly in research that we've done at MPI and that many of us um, in this room have done is that many different narratives coexist. So each of our societies contains an ecosystem, if you will, of multiple overlapping and yes, sometimes contradictory stories and narratives on migration. And I think the key question for all of us today and particularly for the next hour is, why certain narrative strands break through, why certain stories are seen as more credible, how narratives become dominant, where, whereas some dissipate or never take hold or are more easily dismissed. And for this, I think we need to understand not just where people are coming from or what has happened, but how people contextualize the effects of immigration in their own lives. So how they make decisions about where to assign blame or responsibility and how they articulate solutions about where we should go from here. So whether to extend or restrict benefits, for instance. 
And we also know that the reason certain things take hold in our national consciousness um, and kind of become sticky is not because there is necessarily a direct line to the quote unquote facts on the ground. So we know that you can't simply show statistics of how many migrant doctors contributed to emergency rooms during COVID or data on how an influx of migrants in a particular place is or is not correlated with a spike in crime levels, for instance. You can't just drop these things in and have it enter the bloodstream of the debate. And so what we need to, to better understand is how this information, how narratives trigger both existing values and anxieties. And, and what is the sort of special sauce that makes certain narratives catch fire while others lie dormant? And I think answering this question is really important because it means that if you want to address xenophobia and diffuse negative narratives and counter some of the scapegoating that we've seen, you have to do more than simply introducing positive narratives. So positive narratives already exist. They're, they're already part of this ecosystem that I was referencing earlier. But the challenge is to understand how and when certain messages resonate and how we can use these stories to change how people perceive threats and opportunities around them, particularly in times of crisis. So I think this is our job today on this panel. Um, and I'm really excited for the speakers who have joined us today. We're gonna be hearing examples about what works and what doesn't or thoughts on these. It's not a conclusive matter. Um, but we're going to be hearing from folks on what we think makes a good recipe for promoting more balanced narratives. Um, and we're going to be hearing examples of initiatives on the ground um, and what, what people have been trying to sort of shift attitudes on highly polarized issues and what what pitfalls we should be aware of or try to avoid when we're seeking to shape these inclusive narratives. So we have four excellent speakers with us today. I won't give you their full biographies as you can find these on Whova, um, but I will just jump in with our first speaker, Suzette Brooks Masters, who is a senior strategist at the Center for Inclusion and Belonging at the American Immigration Council. And Suzette has done a lot of great work conceptualizing how we should do this and what narratives work. Um, and we'd love to just hear from you um, on what are the kind of do's and don'ts that civil society organizations and governments should take into account when designing inclusive narratives. So Suzette, over to you. Great. Uh, thank you, Natalia, and greetings to all. Uh, I'm so happy to be with you today. So building off of Natalia's introduction, I'm going to begin with a little bit of sobering context setting. Globally, Western democracies are experiencing unprecedented ideological and political challenges to their pluralistic ideals and growing diversity. So in the US, acute partisan polarization has made working on immigration and integration issues extremely contentious. Some might say it's like walking through a minefield. Despite the 2020 election results, anti-immigrant policies and hate crimes are still rising and white nationalism and white identity are strengthening. 
So where do we go from here? Uh, my remarks today are based on extensive multidisciplinary research to understand how best to manage fear and anxiety about demographic change and immigration. So first and foremost, we need to adapt and innovate. This seismic shift in context demands a critical reexamination of how we advocate for more generous immigration and integration policies. We have to ensure that those approaches don't amplify the cultural and political divides that fuel authoritarianism and weaken democracy, things that would really make things much, much worse for the issues that we care about. So recent research underscores the complex and often conflicting views that many Americans hold on immigrants and immigration. And I use those terms throughout as shorthand for all foreign-born newcomers, including refugees and asylum seekers, because the public doesn't make all the nuanced distinctions based on legal status that we do. About two-thirds of the public espouses neither the views of activists on the left or the right. Rather, it comprises what more in common calls an exhausted majority with more complex and seemingly contradictory views. They may support one generous policy, but that doesn't translate into support for others or signal broad acceptance of immigrants as Americans. So to make progress, we must find ways to reach this population, not just appeal to those who already agree with us. Honestly, at least in the US, and I can only speak for the US, this is not how most advocates have been doing their work or arguing their case, and that has to change. So here's my advice very, very briefly. One, framing matters. We need to make immigrants part of us to tap into that solidarity that Natalia was talking about. While it's tempting to uplift immigrant economic contributions and the unique challenges immigrants face, we must be careful to plant immigrants firmly in our social fabric, not elevate them above others by making them exceptional contributors or exceptional victims. Exceptionalist narratives actually other immigrants and make it harder for people to see them as part of us. What works better is to explain how immigrants are integral parts of the community and share foundational values with their neighbors. This can advance a unifying heart-driven narrative about how communities can grow together, about immigrants, them, can become part of us. Two, we need to build bridges with contact and dialogue across difference. Social psychologists remind us that differences can only be bridged under certain circumstances. People need to feel heard and respected before they can open their minds and hearts to other perspectives. The table needs to be set the right way, providing a safe space and equal footing for participants. Reaching out to immigrant skeptics to weaken their racial or other biases requires authentic, empathetic dialogue, deep listening, and mutual vulnerability. This is difficult but essential long-term engagement work. And in addition to that kind of individual work, intergroup dialogue creates precious bridging social capital through relationships that bridge divisions across social groups, such as immigrants and the US born, or whites and people of color. In short, strategies rooted in respect and empathy can broaden support for immigrants 
and strengthen community cohesion and resilience. Siloed approaches are likely only to work with the small segment of the population that is already supported. Three, we need to expand inclusion efforts to foster unity. Inclusion efforts at their best widen the circle of concern and expand the in-group to encompass both receiving community members and newcomers. Studies show that local efforts to welcome newcomers tend to make all members of a community feel welcome, regardless of race, with one exception, white conservatives, those feeling most threatened by loss of status. Integration and welcoming policies accelerate the integration of newcomers and improve the sense of belonging of most other residents. However, separate interventions engaging white conservatives are also essential to mitigate backlash. Four, we need to go broad. Because these issues have become so polarized and the language we use so coded, we need to find pathways forward that skirt those divisions. Whenever possible, we should connect immigration and integration policy to broader policies that promote opportunity and mobility for all. The goal is to avoid the scarcity or zero sum trap and foster an abundance mindset instead. This is key when so many long-term residents are feeling unmoored by rapid technological, generational and demographic change. That means working in alliance with others, solving problems together, and building widespread support for inclusive policies that give immigrants and other members of the community hope, a voice, and a stake. These efforts create the resilience needed to manage disruptors of all sorts. Five, finally, we need to expand narrative and culture change strategies, and I can't emphasize this enough. Since immigration is now a cultural flashpoint, we need narrative and culture change strategies to promote norms, values, and behaviors that affirm pluralistic ideals, our interdependence, and our shared fates. Narrative should affirm unity, create space for complexity and nuance, and connect immigration and integration to broader themes about how to uplift all people, make sure they belong, and honor human dignity. At the Center for Inclusion and Belonging, we have been thinking hard about how best to open this conversation with portions of the American public. I'm now going to show you a one minute video that resulted from two years of extensive research on public opinion that the Center did with the Ad Council. This ad is aimed at members of the exhausted majority, specifically the segments we call potential helpers, and conflicted skeptics. If I could be you, you could be me for just one hour. If we could find a way to get inside each other's minds. If you could see you through my eyes instead of your ego. I believe you'd be surprised to see that you've been blind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Yeah, before you abuse 
criticize and accuse. Walk, Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Well, before you abuse, criticize and accuse. Walk a mile in my shoes. So the one thing I just want to mention about this, and then I'll conclude, is that you'll notice that the terms immigration and immigrant are not mentioned once in the entire minute. The ad seeks to elicit an emotional response based on personal memories of exclusion to reinforce the norm that belonging is what matters, and that all people have these feelings that we can relate to. So I, I know that may be counterintuitive, but this was based on exhaustive research. So I want to leave you with that really provocative uh, thought as I conclude my remarks. And I'm, I'm happy to answer more questions later. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suzette. You've really helped set the table for us um, and pointed out many elements of these strategies that, that you've tested extensively and that you've explained you know why you think work but also alluded to things that can potentially backfire as well um, and so this is a nice segue into getting into some of the meat of different strategies that other panelists have tried and we'll, we'll come back to these ideas later to kind of dig into more what we you know why we think certain things work and others might have kind of counterintuitive effects. Um, and you know, one of the things you mentioned is about um, connecting these efforts to, to broader efforts in society. So not just having these one-off um, campaigns, um, but, but also embedding these principles in different kinds of efforts. And so I want to turn over to um, Agnieszka Kosowicz from the, who's the president of the board of the Polish Migration Forum, um, which is an organization that has, that has tried to do exactly what we've been talking about today, um, trying to foster social cohesion and positive narratives around migration in Poland through multiple different things. So messaging campaigns, but also facilitating face-to-face uh, -face encounters and storytelling. So I'd love to hear from you now, based on this experience of, of what you can tell us about what you think has been most effective. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate that speaking right now before me because everything she says just resonates in the Polish context. And it's just so much happening and so much true. I would like to give you a very short uh, overview of, of my reality right now, because um, it is important to what I'll be, what I'll be speaking about. Uh, Poland has uh, evacuated 1,000 Afghan persons, migrants or refugees uh, from Kabul immediately after the events that we've been all watching on TV with people being evacuating or, or desperate to get onto the planes. And at the same time, we are now experiencing uh, something that the government calls a hybrid war uh, because neighboring Belarus is bringing over hundreds uh, of migrants a day from Iraq, from Iran, uh, from Lebanon right now, uh, and pushes them to Poland. So we have unprecedented, unprecedented 
experience of uh, Greece, uh, in fact, or kind of Greece-like conditions, which is a new um, experience for Poland. We have never had such an influx of several hundred of people a day crossing the border. And the, the government response to this situation was on one hand to accept the Afghans uh, that were evacuated and arranging the situation more or less, but at the same time launching um, pushback procedure, uh, literally pushing all the people back. And now we are in the moment of a very intense uh, parallel narratives one of them being the narrative of the government trying to convince the society that uh, pushing people back to the woods, to the swamps, sending kids back to Belarus is uh, a way to protect Poland's integrity or borders or safety of the Poles. And on the other hand, we have a narrative of human rights uh, organizations or activists who try to persuade the Polish people that those who are sent back to the woods are, after all, people and they deserve to be somewhere warm and, and with food and, and drinks provided. And, uh, and um, when Suzette mentioned in her first point that immigrants, uh, the, the, the whole story is to, to uh, show immigrants as one of us, I think that this is how we are effective in the current situation. So in the uh, circumstances where all the TV news talk about illegal migration, hybrid war, uh, influx, uh, flood, and whatever other words are used to illustrate what is happening, what is successful is this, is, is this situations where someone really considers those people as themselves or as part of them. And we see it in a, uh, in a various levels. Sometimes it is kind of geographical. We had a case a few days ago when a small a group of a family, including small children, was pushed back or stopped by the border guards at the border. And we had a local community gathering around these people because they felt that they are just another family there. And this, this kind of feeling of a likeness or having something in common or having a similar setup uh, is just so much helpful in getting people empathetic or looking at migrants as just humans. Uh, we had cases uh, of, of small uh, villages which really gathered to uh, equip the Afghans evacuated with food, uh, with clothes, with uh, toys, with their time, with cooked food. Uh, with whatever they could contribute, because they felt that th those are people somehow alike. Um, an experience that is new for us, and I don't know how relevant this is for, for the other countries, but for us, it's, it is very interesting to see how this alikeness is found in professions. And we now experience that developing this feeling of empathy or understanding uh, just happens spontaneously when you have people doing the, performing the same profession. We have judges helping judges. We have accountants helping accountants. Uh, we have teachers helping teachers, and we have whole gatherings now being made by, by people gathered around their profession to uh, help other people who, are, who represent the same profession and who were evacuated. Uh, Suzette mentioned uh, building bridges, and this I can also give a practical example uh, how sometimes COVID helps this, and how, sometimes the boredom that people experience or lack of 
life experiences in COVID helped us to build bridges. And for example, we have created a network of senior citizens in Poland that teamed or paired up with migrants who wanted to practice uh, language tuition. And we had uh, this kind of practical ex example where uh, people just felt that uh, they can do something and that they want to do something because they have no other options. And for some people, this, this openness for migrants was kind of an act of uh, desperacy uh, in the lockdown. And, and we found it uh, interesting. Um, quite frequently, we use um, volunteers to help migrant kids in education. We have found that in COVID, the number of people ready to contribute or devote their time to this volunteering uh, has tripled. And we were overwhelmed with this eagerness of people to, to just spend time this way. Uh, what I see um, that, that bothers me or that, that we found uh, dangerous or, or unwelcome is politicization of the debate on, on migrants and refugees. As I mentioned at the beginning, the setup right now is very tense and, and delicate politically. Um, and Suzette also mentioned motivations of people. Why do people get involved in, uh, in these building bridges or getting to know migrants or, or developing narratives? We see right now uh, that this motivation that Suzette mentioned is really indeed very key and um, the quality of work or dedication or sustainability of efforts uh, that are based on values or uh, internal commitment to the case uh, cannot be compared to motivations that are politically driven. And at the moment, we do observe that in Poland, uh, there is a whole concept of helping migrants as a kind of anti-government move. And we see how, um, dangerous this is, or kind of, you know, um, how short perspective this thinking has. And, and we are kind of bothered, and it adds another layer to, to choosing allies, in fact. I mean, you really have to analyze who, who volunteers with a good will and for what reasons, because this, this has become tricky in our, in our uh, setup. What we see is uh, incredible amount of goodwill that is built on the local level and that how, how people really um, get involved when they feel that they can make an impact. And I think that this local perspective where you don't save entire world, you don't change state policy, you don't even make a political statement, but you have neighbors and you have people that you can do something sensible for and how how eagerly people get involved in, in this. After this evacuation of Afghans, we were, to be frank, overwhelmed and scared because it was the first thousand of Afghans we would see in Poland. Uh, but this openness of the, of the society of people was really very encouraging. What I also see is uh, how people um, proceed in kind of a self-analysis of what they can give. And it's, it's also, somehow interesting or, or encouraging that uh, after this initial wave of help understood as uh, paying money or uh, giving away uh, clothes or contributing with food, now people uh, really, a lot of people, analyze the very professional and meaningful resources. So we have, for example, psychologists coming up that they want to help uh, staff working with migrants, offering free supervision. We have cooks 
that say that they can cook Afghan food. We have uh, TV shows that, that volunteer to involve the celebrities in promoting the message. So this, I like it and it is new for us to see how many professionals really see their professional skills as something meaningful and useful um, for the migrants. Uh, we also uh, are impressed with the scope of international interest of international organizations that had their staff evacuated to Poland and how many of them uh, come forward and search for their colleagues that they used to work with in Afghanistan and um, how they really search for the persons that they would like to, to help. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to end with a kind of a sad note that uh, in fact, the power or, or strength or capacity of all the human rights circle in Poland cannot be compared with uh, the strength and capacity of the government. And um, this is really uh, sad because the government is at the moment conducting a constructed effort to dehumanize migrants, to uh, show them in a bad light. Uh, we had the ministers of uh, foreign affairs and interior affairs, sorry, interior affairs, uh, giving a press conference, um, accusing migrants of zoophilia or pedophilia, of links with Russian KGB, um, links with the terrorists. So there is what, what, whatever we are doing as a whole network of activists and, and uh, human rights workers, um, we feel that this is something that is basically acting against the, the official government narrative, which has public media and much more money at their disposal. So this is rather difficult. So I would end with this, unless I guess that I can respond to, to some questions. Maybe this is not really illustrating my concrete examples of work, but we are, I apologize for this because we are really overwhelmed with these new conditions and uh, trying to find a way to function and to, you know, forward our message. Uh, and we feel like a car with this, you know, brake that is put on. So this is our environment right now. No, thank you. It's really helpful to have that real world perspective and context. Um, We'll, we'll have time for questions at the end, but I want to kind of abuse my privilege as chair just to ask one follow up question, um, because I think we've seen this sort of ebb and flow of solidarity and fear mongering, fear mongering throughout COVID. And I'm just wondering how on the ground you're preparing for the inevitable um, you know, dissipation of goodwill. I mean, we know that this sense of solidarity and mobilization at the local level can be extremely powerful, but doesn't necessarily last forever. And so how are you sort of preparing for the possibility that, that things could take a turn and people could start to perceive a threat at the local level? Well, uh, it's not that we foresee, we are sure that it will happen. So. Uh, our tool at the moment is just to build uh, more meaningful um, relationships on the ground. So, for example, what we try to do is, is uh, train the people that we meet and provide them with capacity to go deeper. 
to go beyond this first instinct of help and understand the issue and have more knowledge and also have more skills. So at the moment, we are in fact building a network of people who, um, I would say, I don't know, we, we try to, to turn this kind of initial offers of help into a system. And uh, with the assumption that, of course, not with everybody this will happen. And out of hundreds of people, we will have two people or three people who will be interested in working long term. But we, uh, we think and this, we are convinced that this initial moment where there's so huge interest, we can use it to identify the two or three who can stay with us or who can be meaningful contacts for future. I think this is what we are doing. Also, we are kind of gathering energy ourselves and trying to, you know, set up with our own competence and uh, build alliances on the ground level, build competence. I think that this is this is cool. For example, the schools are uh, an important ally for us and, and uh, working with schools at this initial level where we um, uh, use the schools as a place to, to promote, I don't know, collection of, of something that is needed. We try to train the teachers so that they can meaningfully teach kids. And at the moment, this is where we turn, getting their interest and getting their attention so that they can simply um, acquire competences that will be needed shortly when there is, there is not so much uh, interest. Thank you. That was really nicely. Yeah, that 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 was really nicely put in terms of leveraging the momentum that you see right now to actually push push for systems wide change and not not becoming uh, uh, complacent with just the incremental changes um, we're seeing. So um, I want to turn to 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 Sophie um, to give us another perspective on this issue, a kind of global perspective of how we're tackling the same challenges. So Sophie Van Hassen is the coordinator of the mayor's mechanism for the Global Forum on Migration and Development, who has been involved in launching this global campaign called It, it Takes a Community, which um, from, from its title, you can see that already incorporates some of the lessons that have been discussed today. So I wanted um, to ask Sophie to tell us a little bit about what she thinks is successful with this campaign. And also, if I may, how you're thinking about, um, about dealing with some of the things that Suzette mentioned in terms of the pitfalls of, of elevating the contributions of migrants and refugees. Go ahead, Sophie. Thank you so much, Natalia. And it's really great to be speaking after Suzette and Agneska. I think indeed so many elements of what you both have laid out will be kind of picked up. Although that what we're trying to do is very much like Natalia said, a global effort. So of course there's also challenges to, to this effort being a global one. And I can speak a little bit uh, more to that later, but maybe just a, a few steps back before we got to the TIGS community, because I think the context in which it was set out is also really uh, important and unique um, for for its for to measure its effect. Um, so just to say that the the mayor's mechanism is basically a platform that tries tries to bring the voices of cities into global processes on migration, um, and one of them is the Global Forum for Migration and Development. So this this GFMD, and within that framework, the government of Canada they wanted to uh, set up a permanent conversation forum to talk about what it takes to balance narratives. Uh, and they had asked us to co-chair um, this work together with the government of Ecuador. So it's really interesting, I think, to see that there's 
that there's government willingness to have that conversation at a global level. And uh, especially, and I'm not going to repeat it, just in, in terms of the momentum that we were faced with this, that the idea of this working group um, um, rose early 2020, so just when the, when the pandemic hit. Um, so we really wanted to make use of, okay, this is the momentum. We have this rise in xenophobia, but we also have, and, and I loved how Agnieszka talked about that as well, this incredible kind of surge of, of community solidarity. So how do we make use of that? And we have a really strong group of the willing, I would say, of, of nine national governments, five cities, uh, civil society, including, for example, Oxfam Welcoming International, the private sector as well, and a number of UN agencies kind of coming together behind that, that mission. So we said, okay, we want to do something concrete. We don't just want to be uh, one of the famous, you know, international talk shops and, and sharing experience. We really want, want to focus on some a concrete, let's say, activity. So we wanted to set up a communication campaign. And of course, we went through some of the literature. And I think, Suzette, like a lot of the elements that you mentioned is also what we uh, found in, in the research. And I think we actually looked at that guide that you developed for Welcome International. Um, so, and this is going to sound a little bit repetitive, but I, one, of, one of the key questions that we asked ourselves is what type of messages and stories appeal to that broad audience, to that movable middle? And, and Suzette, you, you touched on that, but I just to repeat a few of them for us, what we really felt is that messages about migration are often reactive to given events and tragedies and very much connect migration to words such as waves, crises, invasions, um, and migrants in it are often portrayed as either being dangerous or being helpless victims. Um, what we've also seen um, in, in that cross analysis of research is that um, often pro-migrant groups also replicate some of those uh, kind of negative connotations. So there's also kind of a mind shift that we, as those those of us that are convinced, already need to need to be doing. Um, the second one is is developing messaging that is based on evidence, but that also manages to appeal to the values of your audience. And of course, that means understanding what those values are. And we've heard it like this conflicted or this movable middle has a lot of different opinions and fears. Um, but it would be important if you would want to reach um, that audience to use a variety of those different messages that appeal to those values, such as, for example, solidarity, personal freedom, family unity, just to name a few of those of those values that we mapped. And then the third one, and we heard it uh, before, is that standalone stories of migrants exacerbate the us versus them. So there's a lot more power in crafting messages that are personal and that are testimonies and that show how migrants uh, alongside community members work, work or live um, together. A, a second question that we asked ourselves was how do we spread such stories and messages? Is it appropriate that you know, those nine national governments in the working group are the ones that you know, spread and massively uh, talk about migration as, as something um, that contributes to our communities? So we said, no, we need to find the right messengers in terms of appealing to that movable middle. So we, we thought we really need to look at city leaders. We need to look at small business owners. We need to look at mayors. Um, so really moving away a little bit from messaging that comes from pro-migrant groups only. Uh, and I think this is very much where this working group, which has such a diverse membership, um, was really valuable for us to, to get that, those stories out. So then we asked ourselves, and I guess that's a, a big question, is what can we actually do as a working group? Um, we had or have quite limited resources. And of course, if you think of a huge communication campaign, you're thinking of a lot of, a lot of budget that you need. So we had limited resources, but a very ample network uh, and a diversity of voices. So from that mix of factors, uh, it takes a community was born. Um, so this is a campaign and it's very much implemented by IOM. 
Um, the idea behind it was how can we inspire people around the world to share personal stories on social media using the hashtag it takes a community uh, and also take positive action uh, to support inclusiveness. Um, the central idea was that it doesn't replace existing campaigns because there's so many out there already, but to bring them together and, and to connect. So as one way to kind of make the campaign alive is to have four different takeovers of the campaign this year. So we had the different say groups in our working group um, take really close ownership of the campaign for one or two weeks um, to craft messages specifically from a youth perspective, specifically from a private sector perspective, uh, from the city perspective. And we just actually had the takeover of civil society, um, which just closed last week. Um, so the idea of those takeovers was the creation of video stories, hosting of online chats and discussions. Um, I can talk just a little bit to close on, let's say, preliminary conclusions and some lessons learned. Um, I think it's quite difficult to measure impact, and this is something that we would have to look into as we move into a second phase of this campaign. I mean, of course, we can look at social media engagement, but it doesn't really say anything about how you've changed opinions of that movable middle, which is a much trickier thing to do, especially when you're looking at a global campaign. Um, there's a lot of interesting initiatives out there now in which I think in a future phase, it would be really worthwhile to, to work with. For example, the Xenophobia Barometer, which is um, a Venezuelan migrant-led uh, organization in Colombia, which is now uh, doing a lot of interesting analysis on social media connected to political events. For example, a mayor speaking out positively about um, migrants and inclusion. So it would be interesting to connect different efforts um, to see what the impact is that we're really having. I think getting out of our own comfort zone was also a bit of a, a tricky thing for, for many of the members on the working group to do. Um, for example, talking about that us rather than us versus them, um, this is something that I saw in within the different takeovers, for example, that was still very tricky for organizations that are convinced that migration is, is beneficial for development to kind of speak about inclusion rather than us versus them and rather than uh, focusing on migrants alone. Um, I think in, we need multiple levels of action and, and Agnieszka also said it, what can we do to really create change? I think a global social media campaign will not do the trick on its own. Um, what we also did with the campaign is host a lot of dialogues between different stakeholders. We felt that there's a lot of expertise out there on this topic already, but not necessarily everyone's talking to each other. And we felt that happening at the national level as well. Sometimes you have academia uh, kind of moving in their own world. You have civil society kind of moving in their own. So there's a lot of value in, in, in having these different actors speak together on this topic uh, and creating almost, and I think uh, David Lubel from Welcoming International refers to it as this welcoming ecosystem. This is something that would also make, um, make a sustainable impact, I think. Uh, so if we manage to kind of get a second phase of the campaign, this is a little bit what we'll be looking at. So how can we um, invest more in this network building, in this cross-learning and dialogue across the different constituencies of the working group, which are, of course, the states, civil society, cities. Uh, so really kind of bringing that melting pot of, of experts together. Um, voila. So I'll, I'll end here, but happy to take, to take further questions afterwards. Thank you, Sophie. It's really fascinating to see how this campaign and the ideas 
behind it have evolved over over the past two years. Um, and thanks for bringing in um, this concept of the importance of messengers, not just the message itself. Um, and you know, related to that, um, we also need to think about how to incorporate the voices of migrants and refugees in the crafting of the messages themselves. So I want to um, hand over to our last speaker to, to talk about, about this a little bit. Um, Musa al-Jamat founded together with other Syrian refugees, um, the magazine Bainana, um, which is the first um, uh, media in Spain that is led by refugees. And so we wanted to hear from you about um, how how refugees and migrants um, can help shape these inclusive narratives that we're talking about. Hola, buenas tardes a todos y todas. Y quiero dar las gracias a todos uh, por invitarnos a participar en este encuentro. Uh, la verdad, yo voy a hablar como en el sentido como yo soy refugiado aquí en España, venimos a España hace dos años y dos meses, casi dos meses. Uh, salimos de, de Siria, es un país de guerra, uh, entonces uh, eh, diez años sufriendo eh, la guerra en, en nuestro país, en Siria, y venimos aquí a España, pensamos que es España el cielo, uh, como encontramos luz uh, después de 10 años sin luz, uh, pero al tiempo ya empiezan cosas a, a aparecer, uh, a encontrar cosas como racismo, el curso, discurso del odio, uh, muchas dificultades, uh, ya como saben que Venimos a un país nuevo, no sabemos nada del idioma, no sabemos de la cultura, de, de eso. Y, y por, por nuestra parte, como nosotros trabajamos periodistas, como 10 años en la guerra, eh, venimos aquí y queremos seguir trabajando en el sector del periodismo. Eh, vemos que la mayoría de... De, de los medios de comunicaciones están mostrando los refugiados y inmigrantes como víctimas en una imagen muy negativa a veces y, y la gente vemos que hay mucha gente tiene miedo de los inmigrantes y los refugiados y, y hay, hay, hay gente que tiene pensamiento que, que son terroristas y decidimos entre nosotros de, sin apoyo y encontramos con, con, con mis compañeros, somos, somos cuatro periodistas y decidimos ya vamos a empezar, vamos a crear una revista, el objetivo de ella contar las historias de, de los refugiados migrantes y mostrar la imagen positiva, uh, mostrar la verdad, no queremos decir el correcto nada más. Uh, por eso empezamos y uh, creamos esta revista, la revista Bainana, y empezamos a contar uh, las historias de, de los refugiados y encontramos, la verdad, hay un montón de, de éxitos. Están los refugiados migrantes, están uh, 
han abierto sus negocios, uh, ya tienen sus tiendas. Eh, puedo dar ejemplo como eh, hemos uh, hecho una, un reportaje sobre un afgano ya ya tiene dos tiendas de alfombras uh, de, de Afganistán y unos uh, y otra historia sobre un, un dos refugiados sirios vinieron aquí a España se abrieron sus nuevos sus, sus restaurantes y, y, y están formando un parte del país están eh, eh, no solo están trabajando se cogen un parte del dinero lo que sacan mandando al campo de refugiado están ayudando están pagando impuestos y, y por eso estamos luchando aquí en la revista Vainana y, y contar la, las historias de, uh, de los refugiados, migrantes y queremos también dar información, informa, hay falta mucha información útil para los refugiados y migrantes, están dándola y, y, uh, uh, y nada más, quiero dar las gracias a todos y todas y, y si hay preguntas, aquí estoy para responder. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much, Musa. Um, and that's a that's a powerful illustration of, of what you have to do to sometimes counter the messages that are being spread by those who have more resources in our society, um, which is something and, and more platforms available to them, which is something that Agnieszka alluded to earlier. Um, and so, you know, we need to think about how not only what messages are being spread, but also all of the different ways um, that they are, are getting to people and what types of messengers are, are being leveraged. And when that all comes together, you know, is, is that um, filtering into the public consciousness as something that, that is credible are people even seeing these messages, right? I mean, I think that's another that's another factor we have to consider um, in this uh, in this information landscape where we can so easily curate what we even come into contact with. Um, how do we ensure that the messages we want people to receive um, are actually in front of them? Are 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 being conveyed to them in some way. And only after that can we think about um, to what extent they're being absorbed and metabolized versus sort of easily dismissed in favor of something else. Um, I wanna give everybody a chance to ask questions now of our wonderful panelists um, and try to have a little bit of a discussion in the, I think 15 minutes that we have left. Um, so please feel free to, um, to drop messages in the chat, um, either directly in Zoom or on Whova, um, and Lucia will send them over. Um, since there, I don't see any right now, um, you could also raise your hand if anybody is feeling bold and ask a question verbally. Oh, I think, Agnieszka, was that you raising your hand? If there is no questions, I can- Yes, 
a minute and say something else that I have shared on chat already because uh, it came to, I, I just decided to share another piece of news for, or idea with you after Sophie's remark about bringing different resources together and being proactive. So I wanted to tell you that in Poland we have done an exercise that I think is quite rare because uh, a network of organizations uh, working with migrants has prepared a state uh, migration policy. So uh, it, uh, the, the idea came from, from the fact that we were not happy with the government's uh, way of drafting this document or, or with thinking about migration policy. So we wanted to present some kind of narrative being, uh, as you said, proactive. And uh, we invited employers, migrants, academia, um, a lot of other networks or groups of people that could have something to say and put together and indeed created a, a state migration policy that just proposes we, we, we are not kind of silly enough to think it will be implemented, but our objective was to propose another way of talking about this or in other words, or um, putting emphasis in the, in the state thinking on other things. So I think we succeeded actually. We, it was a document that was just recently finished and is in the process still of, of many consultations, but we enjoy the fact how much ferment it created in the whole environment that we dared to, to, to do something really big uh, with a completely different perspective. And I encourage any states that would like to have an NGO migration policy to do so. Thank you so much for that. Um, and that's a really powerful example of of impact. Um, there's another question related to impact in our chat. Um, and Sophie, I, I see you have your hand up. So I want to just throw this question out um, to see if if this <laughs> we can bundle that into <laughs> what you were about to say as well. And you already alluded to this a little bit, which is it's one thing to sort of measure um, you know, the take up of a campaign in terms of, you know, how how many times it was disseminated or how many channels it was released on. And it's quite another to try to measure impact in terms of attitudinal change. And so this question in the chat is, how can we monitor the campaigns to get to know if we are on the right path and assess the impact we are achieving, including going beyond the usual suspects to the wide middle of the population. So this also adds the component of are we just preaching to the converted, right? Or are we actually reaching the movable middle that, that you and Suzette spoke about? So I don't know, Sophie, do you wanna take the first crack and then um, maybe Suzette also wants to jump in on that, great. Sure, I can talk a bit about kind of measuring, but I also wanted to react to Agnieszka, if that's all right. Um, I was really inspired by what she said about kind of that alternative um, policy. And I just wanted to lift up maybe also what we're seeing from the city level. And it's been really interesting from, from, for me personally, I used to work within the GFMD kind of more following the national governments and now working very closely with cities. And it's really interesting also to see how bold some of the cities are being in terms of just having a consultation process to, um, to shape a local migration policy, but also involving um, migrants and refugees in the institutional setup of their city. So it doesn't necessarily connect specifically to communication strategies, but in some cities we see that that's actually a concrete outcome of, of 
those inclusion um, strategies. And it's across the globe. It's, you have Sao Paulo, Johannesburg, New York, uh, Mejila, Lima. So there's really interesting um, kind of practices um, there from the city level. Now to talk about the indicators, yeah, it's actually a challenge that we face at the global level. Um, so we have some kind of high level indicators for the social media reach, which of course they don't say a lot. I mean, for example, we had 6 million impressions on social media, but what has been really interesting is to see, um, for example, that most of these have been have had a positive connotation. So that already gives you a sense of, you know, uh, because they could easily be also picked up from an anti-migrant sentiment, um, but they they haven't. So I, on the one hand, that's a that's really good news. What we're seeing on the other hand is that um, it's mostly global north pickup of the messages. So I think if we move into a next kind of strategy for, for the campaign, we would have to think of how do we actually get the global south voices in, and we have a number of national governments and cities from, from the global south as well. So it would be really important to bring their voices even, even closer to, to the process. Um, so I think that's all I, I have to say on, on the indicator measurement, other than that for us, it would have to be a priority um, as well going forward. Of course, it requires a bit of resources and also looking maybe at how a global campaign uh, impacts locally and then measuring impact locally as well, because I think um, these these um, these perception changes happen at the local level and not at a global um, global level. So um, I'm happy to to add a little bit here. Obviously, this is the the key question, right? Is how you measure this, how you know whether you're succeeding or not, and it's very very challenging for all the reasons people have discussed. It's costly. It takes time. Uh, there may be impacts that are um, short-lived that then wane or impacts that take time to uh, manifest. So what we've tried to do is obviously you measure outputs, right? You want to make sure your campaign is landing and people are seeing it. But simultaneously, what we did with the Belonging Begins With Us campaign is we worked very, very closely with the Ad Council with this very, very detailed audience segmentation to know that we are reaching the very, very specific demographics within the exhausted majority that consume certain kinds of media. So these, these are highly targeted to the specific uh, tastes and consumption of media of the particular segments that we're trying to reach. So we know this is not just going into the ether, right? It is landing with that population. And then what we're also trying to do is, and I didn't mention this earlier, the ad portion is what we call the air game, right? Which is consumed through media. But then there's an action step. Uh, you saw at the end of the campaign to go to the website. And then there are a number of engagement strategies. And so the other way we can try to assess this is whether people that are being targeted are actually taking action, right? In response to that connection, that emotional connection they felt. It's gonna take a while to determine whether this was impactful. And as people have mentioned, these are very expensive campaigns, right? So we hope that we can sustain it. But many of you have heard of the company Walmart. It's a very, very large global brand. They have been extremely helpful, both in terms of connecting us through their media many of their customers are our target audience. And so we've been working very closely with them, their supporters of the campaign. 
um, to try to make more of those, um, those connections. The only other thing I'll say, this is a very different kind of campaign and I, um, it was posted in the chat earlier, is in America, we've been experimenting with something called deep canvassing, which is a very different kind of strategy that's based on personal connection through like a 15 minute story exchange where people make themselves very vulnerable and, um, and elicit the stories of the people they're trying to persuade. So it is primarily a, a strategy to reach people who don't already agree with you. And there's a group called People's Action uh, in America that's really spearheaded this, this strategy. And it's been peer reviewed and written about in academic journals with randomized uh, control testing. And it's been highly, highly effective in persuading people who don't already agree with you, humanizing them to each other and reducing affective polarization. So again, I, I reckon, so, so there are many different ways of doing this work, more individual, more global, more um, you know, ad campaigns. So I wanna make a plug for this thing called deep canvassing. And then um, I, I guess I'll stop there, but, um, but so, it's really difficult, uh, Patricia, to give you a satisfactory answer because this is so difficult to do, but we know that we need to do it and we're, we keep trying. Thank you. Um, and I guess another, another question is how you even get people to come to the table for, for these types of encounters, but maybe we'll, we'll leave that for, for another conversation. There is another question in the chat here from Gamal um, for Musa, um, which is um, again, you know, um, connected to what we're talking about with impact. How how was the reception of the local community and across Spain for your work? Do we still have Musa on the screen? Hi. Sí, sí. ¿Cuál, cuál es la pregunta otra vez, por favor? Sure. So the question is about how the local community has been receiving the information from your magazine. And also if you um, have any information mm -hmm. about how it's being received across Spain. Sí, uh, la verdad que nosotros, uh, nuestra revista es bilingüe árabe y español y, y tenemos la, la más comunidad más grande es español y la gente le interesa mucho eh, en, en nuestra revista y, eh, y nuestra forma de escribir porque es distinto lo que hay, es distinto a los medios de comunicación de, de España. Eh, porque nosotros escribimos como, como, eh, como refugiados y luego como periodistas sirios. Y entonces estamos contando lo que están sufriendo los, los, los uh, migrantes e, y refugiados. Por eso la gente eh, tiene mucho interés en esto. Thank you so much. Um, 
we have, oh, I think I do see another um, hand up from Haile, Casa Hailu. Go ahead, you can ask your question. Okay, we just you can have ask your question. Okay. We just have a few minutes left and then, um, and then we'll have to wrap up. Thank you, and thank you for the interesting conversation. Um, what I want to ask, maybe to give you some background, I live in Switzerland and I work in projects that has to do with refugees, and I have a refugee background myself. So uh, from lived experience and work experience, I often uh, see that the potential within refugees uh, is not so um, you, uh, it's underestimated, to be honest. So uh, give, uh, Musa is a very good example on how refugees can own their challenge and you know come up with uh, their own solutions. And I was wondering uh, if uh, you can share some experience of helping refugees to own the challenge, uh, uh, to empower, uh, empowering refugees also to own the, their challenge so that they can also face the challenge and also ask support by themselves, to be honest. Uh, my concern is again, you know, often we uh, fail into this trap of wanting to rescue, you know, uh, having good intentions behind it, but wanting to rescue the poor refugees. So I am more interested to hear about that uh, if you have some stories to, to share. Thanks. Thank you. Does somebody want to tackle this question in, in just a minute? Suzette? Um, I think it's a great question. And I do think one of the challenges that we often face with the narrative work and the exceptionalism is the, the charity mindset, right? Which is not always helpful. It's extremely well-intentioned, but it, it sometimes boomerangs. Um, I, I, all I know is that in the US, it's been somewhat challenging to organize refugees. Uh, we have found in America that refugees don't necessarily self-organize in the same way and with the same speed as other migrant groups, in part because they're so diverse. Um, and there's often a, a real debt of gratitude to the receiving community for having brought them in. And so it sometimes creates some cognitive dissonance in terms of you know, speaking up and being more critical. So that's been a challenge in, in the United States. I'm not sure how broadly shared that challenge is, but compared to other flows of people with different legal statuses, that has been a challenge. But there, there are a couple of new organizations. One is called the Refugee Congress. And then there's a, another uh, you know, intergroup uh, project called We Are All America that are really trying to empower uh, refugee voices and bring them to the table in a more direct way. But it has been a challenge, not for lack of trying, but because it, it's they, there's some resistance there. So I'll, I'll just, others may have different experiences, but that, that is my off the cuff uh, response. Agnieszka, did you wanna jump in for the last word? 
Uh, yes, I also very much welcome your question and just wanted to share the Polish context that we have a, a refugee-run radio and refugee, a couple of refugee-run organizations. But what I see is also a lot of difficulties that they face, and I would call it, uh, I'm sorry to say that, but I think that they are sometimes uh, tr treated in a very instrumental way. And uh, at the moment, it is kind of a politically correct approach to invite a refugee or a migrant to an event. What I'm concerned with is space that uh, these people are given, for example, and I observe that very often uh, you have, you know, a, a panel of speakers and a refugee who shares a story. And we do see a challenge with, you know, inviting a refugee to, to say not how they got to Poland, but really share the opinions and perspective and capacity that people have. And I, I share your, your concern that very often this capacity of refugees is not actually recognized, even, even if they are at the table. Thank you. This is a really um, thoughtful back and forth and just highlights some of the complexities of what we've been discussing today. Um, we are um, out of time, unfortunately, for this um, really rich discussion. Um, I think we could all talk about this for another hour. Um, there um, there is a discussion space on Whova, so I think for the next half hour in our program, um, uh, there's a spot reserved for uh, creating discussion topics in the community section of the app, where you can continue to connect with each other and keep the dialogue going, share articles, um, share examples. Um, I just want to say a couple of, of things in closing. Um, uh, it's hard to, to do justice to this rich discussion, but um, we've, we've had a great conversation around the principles of effective narratives. Um, we've heard about the importance of making immigrants a part of the us rather than drawing rigid boundaries between us and them, even if we are um, showing that migrants are exceptional in order to elevate their contributions. Um, we've talked about how it's important to connect campaigns to systemic changes to make sure that the efforts we are investing in now are actually sustainable and have a longer term impact beyond just one campaign. Um, I think a huge remaining gap is that we, we don't know and we can't know what works in countering negative narratives in every in every situation. Um, we don't have enough evidence, first of all, um, around under what conditions um, certain messages work or not and what makes certain narratives stick or become dominant. It's a it's encouraging to know that um, there are many there are efforts underway to start tracking this more and investing in trying to measure the impact of, of what people are doing on the ground. Um, but we don't have all of these answers right now. Um, and there's also a power asymmetry. Sometimes negative narratives um, are stickier or more diffuse and have more powerful backing. Um, whereas um, in certain contexts, the advocacy, advocacy community has fewer resources. And this is again why this capacity building that we've been hearing about 
um, is extremely important. So the key question is how to harness the solidarity that we do see and tell a persuasive story of, of togetherness. Um, and I've been really inspired by some of the examples we've heard today about exactly how to do this. So I hope we can all continue these discussions um, and we're looking forward to seeing everybody tomorrow um, for the session on planning and shaping inclusive post-COVID-19 recovery that starts at 2.15 in the afternoon Central European time and 8.15 Eastern Standard Time. Thank you all.